in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. We're going to be looking today at the letter to the church at Philadelphia. Many of you know what Philadelphia means. Come on. <laughs> no, 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 no. City of Brotherly Love. It's the city of Brotherly Love. Our Philadelphia is named after this Philadelphia. And this Philadelphia goes way back. Uh, and in its founding, uh, there were two brothers. And um, interesting uh, kind of background between these two brothers. At one point, uh, the younger brother was told his older brother was kind of like the, the head of the city. And uh, he went on a trip, and uh, his uh, younger brother was told that um, he had been killed, and uh, he was to take the, the throne in terms of uh, being the head of the city. This was uh, still back in the Greek days. And um, so he did that, and uh, then uh, a couple of years later, his older brother shows up. He hadn't been killed at all. And uh, he had been detained and some problems had ensued, so he showed up. And out of love and respect for his older brother, he surrendered the leadership of the city, gave it back to his older brother. And uh, he was uh, actually um, called a Philadelphos because he had such a love and affection for his brother. And so the city of brotherly love was kind of born, and that city, if uh, if you look at the map, do we have that up there? There we go. Uh, that city, you remember I told you this was kind of like the mail route, where the mail, uh, the uh, ships would come into the port at Ephesus, and then uh, the mail would carry it up to Smyrna, and then Sardis, and Thyatira, and Pergamon, and then they'd make the long loop back down to Philadelphia, and finally Laodicea, and, and then back to the coast. And so Philadelphia was uh, a key point down in that region uh, as being kind of a gateway uh, back to the, the port at Ephesus. And so it had strategic significance as well as historical significance. Um, A.D. 17, there was a huge earthquake. One of the drawbacks of living in Philadelphia was uh, that there were... Uh, it was prone to earthquakes. It set, sits right on a fault line. And there was such a devastating earthquake in AD 17 that uh, although Sardis was uh, most severely affected economically, um, Philadelphia was practically leveled. And the aftershocks in Philadelphia, because of the place where it was located, went on for so long that uh, cracks continued to develop in the buildings and in the walls and whatever. And for a number of years, the people actually left the city and went out to the surrounding area and, and farmed, uh, even though they had had a, a great uh, wine business and vineyard and everything. They went out and farmed for a while because it was just too uh, risky to live in town. But eventually the city kind of came back together and now... We're looking at the end of the first century, and we're looking at these churches in Asia. 
And uh, Philadelphia, as we've noted before, is one of two churches that Jesus has nothing negative to say about. Um, Both of these churches receive only commendation. And as we compare the two, uh, and, and we look at Smyrna, we look at Philadelphia, we find that the reason both of them are commended is for the, for, for the same thing. They were faithful. They were uh, loyal. They were committed to Christ no matter what the cost. And they stayed true to their faith. And as a consequence of that, their lights were shining brightly even though uh, it looked like from the outside and the obvious that they were suffering uh, tremendous uh, persecution, uh, they were actually uh, enjoying spiritual uh, brightness or, or benefit uh, from uh, who they were. Now, notice how this opens up. Jesus identifies himself in each of these letters with some characteristic terms that are particular to the city, and it says, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, and opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens, says this. Jesus identifies Himself in three ways. He says, I am the one who is holy, I'm the one who is true, and I'm the one who has the key of David. Each of these terms has great significance for the church members in Philadelphia. They were not only being persecuted in general because of their faith, but they were being particularly persecuted by the Jewish synagogue in the town. Um, there were several towns where the Jews had a vitriolic hatred for those who became followers of Jesus Christ. And Philadelphia was one of those towns where the, the Jewish congregation, the synagogue, hated, hated the Christians. And they excommunicated them from the synagogue. And you know, we look back on that and we say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, they were saved. That's our perspective 2,000 years later. If the only thing you've ever known growing up is the synagogue, the uniqueness of the Jews, God's favored people, the special jewel uh, of God's, you know, affection and, and of His attention. The people that He loves, the people that He has chosen for Himself for all eternity and given all the promises to and all the prophets and all the history. And from your perspective, you have come to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah You have not turned your back on Judaism. You have simply embraced the next step because you have seen that Jesus is the Messiah that had been promised. And you have embraced Him. And all of your life is wrapped up in the culture 
and in the worship and in the law and in the history of the Jewish community. Imagine, with that background, being excommunicated from the synagogue. Thrown out, not permitted to ever come back again. They hold a funeral for you. You can't see your family. You can't see your friends. They won't acknowledge you on the street. They refuse to speak to you. They treat you as dead. They want nothing to do with you. You have become a persona non grata. You, you, you are useless and worthless. And you don't even have dignity as a person. You have become a traitor. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine emotionally how you would feel. And this is the way the synagogue treated all of them. So Jesus wants them to know, I am the Holy One of Israel. All of their lives they had worshipped the Holy One of Israel. All of Judaism pointed to the Holy One of Israel, the God who is unlike any other God, the God that is wholly other, the God who is completely different, the God who does not have uh, hands and feet and made of stone and wood, the, the God who exists in the heavenlies and who created the universe, this God who is above all other gods, the Holy One of Israel. Jesus says, That's who I am. All your life you've been worshiping me. I am the Holy One of Israel. I want you to know, you have not left me. The Jews have thrown you out. But they have left the faith. You are still on the straight path. And then he says, I'm the true one. I'm the genuine article. I am the Messiah of promise. I'm the one for whom you've been waiting. I'm the one that is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. I'm the one that is the Redeemer. I'm the one that will save you. I am Messiah, your King. I'm the true one. The genuine article. Not a false Messiah. Not some mistaken notion. Not an imposter. I am the real deal. Follow me. So he wants them to know. I am the Holy One and the True One. And then he says to them, And I have... The keys of David, the keys of the kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22, you don't have to turn there, but you can check that out later. Isaiah refers to uh, David or or to the priest as having uh, the, the key of David. David is the one who is the king of Jerusalem. He has authority over the city. David is the one who can say, this one can come in, or who can banish someone from the city. He is the one that has the final authority. 
this metaphorically represents the keys of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who opens the door to the kingdom of God, and I am the one who closes the door. And when I open the door, no one can shut it. And when I close the door, no one can pry it open. I have the keys of the kingdom. And those who have thrown you out, that say that uh, they're of the synagogue, he says they're of the synagogue of Satan. They can't throw you out of the kingdom. They don't have that authority. I have that authority. And I will open the door wide to you. And you will enjoy passage into the kingdom. But I will close it on them. And they will not be able to pry it open. They will not be able to gain access to the kingdom. Because they are of a false faith. And they are not really Jews. But they are liars and have turned them their back on the truth. And he says, one day they will come and they'll bow down to you. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So, this is how Jesus introduces himself. Here's a church that has suffered tremendously. Every one of them has been ostracized. And all those Gentiles who were converted to be identified with them have been ostracized. They are outcast. They are not welcome in the community or in the synagogue. Jesus says, I welcome you. I'm the real deal. I'm the genuine article. I'm the Holy One of Israel. And I have opened the door of the kingdom to you. You belong to me in the kingdom. Aren't those comforting words when you hear them from the Lord Himself, when He gives that kind of affirmation? Now, what does He commend them for? What is it that catches His attention and that He gives special recognition? He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door that no one can shut, even though you have a little bit of power, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church of Philadelphia was a small church. It was struggling. Uh, it was not, uh, you know, one of these, uh, it wasn't a mega church. It was a church that was just barely uh, keeping its head above water. It, it wasn't greatly influential. It was not making a significant impact. You know, sometimes we go through periods of time when we feel like all of our efforts as a congregation are not being productive. They're not accomplishing anything. We go through these dry spells. And oftentimes when that happens, there's a, there's a tendency to um, 
want to ask yourself, you know, what's wrong with, with us? Why are we failing so miserably? Why are we not impacting our community? What's, what's going on that we're not making a difference? I'm not suggesting that we never self-evaluate. We certainly need to do that. When things are going wrong, one of the first questions you need to ask is, Lord, is it me? Am I the one? Uh, do I have the problem? And you need to ask that question sincerely. But if God does not, if you've asked sincerely and God does not give you a concrete answer, uh, because He is more than happy to reveal what the problem is, and if you don't hear anything, then there are other issues that may be stifling your influence from beyond yourself, outside of yourself. And this was the case in Philadelphia. Uh, There was nothing wrong with their steadfast faith. There was nothing wrong with their commitment. There wasn't anything wrong with their desire. But they had very little influence. They had just a little power. Not a lot of power. They had just a little. Uh, But Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know what you have done. Uh, I know that you have not denied my name. I asked myself as I was preparing this, how do I bring this into the present tense? How do I put us as a 21st century congregation in the um, shoes of the church at Philadelphia And what does that look like? How many of you have been excommunicated from the synagogue? Anybody? Okay. Some (laughs) Marshall. (laughs) You know, no, we haven't we haven't had that experience. But are there other ways in which our faith has been tested when it's been hard? To stay by the stuff, to be faithful, to be committed. See, that's what Jesus is commending them for. I know your deeds. I know, I know what you've faced and I know how you've handled it and you've been faithful. I tried to think back through my life because there are some kinds of oppression or persecution that are overt and obvious. And then there are some that are more subtle and kind of under the table. And we need Paul in Ephesians to remind us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I worked my way through college. Uh, Rowena and I were married after our first year and we moved up to North Georgia. And we were trying to, you know, keep house buy groceries, take care of our bills, go to school, uh, all those kinds of things all at once. And uh, we were both working. And one of the, the thing that I did through all those years was I, I worked in construction. I worked as a carpenter. And I was fortunate most of the time to work 
for crews that had a lot of Christians on them because of the network within the school and the churches. I often kind of networked into a job that that was uh, at least controlled by Christians. But every once in a while, I had to take a job that uh, there were no Christians. And, of course, it doesn't take long on a construction crew to sniff out the fact that you're a ministerial student. And, oh, boy, as soon as they find out, you know. Uh, first of all, and maybe some of you can relate to this, but it's been a particular affliction of mine that I must confess has always bothered me. The minute people find out I'm a preacher, a pastor, they get uncomfortable. They suddenly become nervous. They don't like me around. In some cases, their language changes, or they try to. Most of the time, they end up saying, excuse me, oh, I'm sorry, oh, excuse me. And it's like, please... Can you just forget who I am? But anyway, uh, I worked on this particular crew, and they went the other direction. They delighted in talking as dirty and vulgar and filthy as they possibly could. They constantly told me jokes that were filthy, vulgar humor to get a rise out of me. They picked at me from the moment I stepped on the job until the moment I left, all day long. And I really got tired of that. It was overt persecution because of my faith. They resented me being there. And and they were so thrilled when I got another job. <laughs> and so was I, to be perfectly honest. You know, um, I, I've had other situations come up where there has been overt kind of persecution. Um, one of the things I did in Tennessee, uh, in Franklin, when I we went for a couple of years and I had uh, given up my salary in order to uh, enable the church to uh, make ends meet and gone back to construction and remodeling and cabinet making, those kinds of things. But I also found out that if I worked with the sheriff's department, that uh, I would be permitted to take part-time side jobs. Uh, Tennessee had an interesting law in that the local sheriff decided who and who could not carry a weapon. And so what he did was he restricted anyone with a weapon to being a uh, commissioned officer. And that preserved all of the side jobs that required armed security to his own men. And I say men because that's all there were at that point in time. And so it was a great opportunity to make 12 bucks an hour for part-time work that I could take or leave, depending on my schedule, if I rode back up 
in a in a squad car at night and provided that kind of relief. So so I did that, and uh, it, it was a good way to make a little extra money. So when I first moved up here, I thought, wow, I uh, I could go to work, uh, you know, make an impact in the community, not go to work, but but volunteer my time with the local sheriff's department and have an influence in the community. I'm always looking for ways to get out of the church and into the community in order to make my faith known where people wouldn't naturally. Because as a pastor, i got to tell you, not too many people walk in the door and say, how can I be saved? I mean, I, I can count on my fingers the times that's happened in 40 years. So one, one hand and have some left. So I have to move out. So I thought, well, that would be a great way to get involved in the community. And uh, so they they found out I was a commissioned officer, and they thought, well, that's kind of good. We don't have to train him. So I went for the interview, and the interview um, was interesting. What do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, really? What kind of pastor? I.e., are you Catholic, or are you some other kind of pastor? Well, I fessed up to being an evangelical, and uh, Father, how do you feel about carrying a gun? Okay, did you read the part where I was a commissioned police officer? They couldn't get it. And then... They ultimately came around to saying, we don't want you on the sheriff's department. Because, A, they didn't want me making them uncomfortable. That was sort of admitted. B, they didn't want me out there when they thought I might act like a father instead of a police officer. And so they rejected me on solely that basis. I won't go into details. I could tell you other stories. But through my life, I have had experience of being rejected or persecuted simply because of my faith and my position. Some things are obvious. Some of you face that at your job. Some of you struggle with it in your family. Some of you face it even with a spouse. You deal with situations in your life where you are resented because of your faith. Which is precisely what the people in Philadelphia were experiencing. But there are other ways of being persecuted besides the overt and the obvious. Paul says when we struggle and wrestle, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in, in heavenly places. We're fighting demons. And they don't always come announcing and making themselves known. They just show up in terms of people that create misery for our lives for no other reason than the devil hates us. Do you know what I'm getting at? 
sometimes that person in your life that is giving you the most grief, the biggest trouble, does not even realize that they're an instrument of Satan like these Jews who thought they were following God, but they're the synagogue of Satan. They don't even realize they have become an instrument of Satan to oppress you. They just, there's something about you that they want to persecute. They want to make you miserable. They dog your steps. I should say devil your steps. Because that's what's driving them. Not every sickness that comes upon you is a natural cause. There is a lot of credibility. I have a friend who prays with me regularly and sometimes we pray for each other and he will often take the name of some sickness that is distressing me and speak directly to it in the name of Jesus and bind it in the name of Jesus. In essence, recognizing that not every sickness that comes upon us has a natural origin. Yes, it may respond to insulin or an antibiotic or something else. It may give positive laboratory test results. It may look like an ordinary illness, but in fact it isn't. It has underlying it. Remember the woman who came to Jesus that had the, the constant bleeding, the issue of blood, and she touched Him, and a spirit of infirmity left her. She had, the Scripture says she had been bound by a spirit of sickness for many years. Sometimes we are wrestling with the enemy in subtle ways that we don't recognize. Sometimes difficulties come into our life uh, of an economic nature or of a, a societal nature that, that affect us and afflict us. Sometimes accidents and trauma occur because Satan is out to bring us down. And friends, in those times, the testing, the, the, the whole point of it is to get us to give up on God. What good is God? Where is He? What is He doing for me? How is He letting this stuff happen? Why is this all coming down on me? What is my problem? Why doesn't God take care of me? Those kinds of questions which the Scripture calls the fiery darts of the enemy that attack our minds. When we have those thoughts and those missiles are sent into our thinking uh, to, to get us to become disappointed with God and to begin to lose faith in Him. Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, you have stuck by the stuff. You have been faithful. You have seen it through. You have not given in. You have been true to me in every situation. Friends, 
There will come a day. There will come a day when these trials are past. And whether it's in this lifetime, but more likely it will be when we meet with Jesus, there will come a time of judgment. And there will be those people who have mocked us and persecuted us and opposed us and deviled us who will bow down in humility at our feet and weep with repentance because we followed the true and living God and they are on the outside and they will be so grieved that they have caused us so much distress. The church at Philadelphia had gone through tremendous persecution. And Jesus' final uh, word to them is, he says, I know what you've been through, and there is an hour of testing that is coming upon the world, and I will keep you from the hour. Now, there are two points I want to make about this verse. I will keep you from the hour of testing. One of them is eschatological. It refers to the end times in and of itself. He says there is a time, uh, let me read it to you precisely. Um, there is, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And the first question that arises from the verse is, is Jesus promising to take them out before the hour of testing? Or is He promising to keep them through the hour of testing? And there's a significant difference between the two. The one is, you escape it entirely. The other is, you are protected as you move through the crucible of the testing time. And I will tell you very honestly, there, there is some ambiguity in the text as to how this should be interpreted. And you can't prove, for those of you that are tuned in to me now 100%, you cannot prove from this verse a pre-tribulation or a mid- or post-tribulation rapture. Even though Lewis Barry Schaefer does his very best to prove a pre-trib rapture, and many do, there are an equal number that marshal arguments on the other side. And when it's all said and done, uh, the wisest conclusion is to say, this is not a proof text. We need to go to other passages of Scripture that are far more clear to understand the timing of the rapture than to try to make a case out of this one verse. On the other side of the coin, <clears throat> we do not want to miss the lesson. Whether you're going through it or getting yanked out of it, the Scripture says that Jesus will keep us in or from the hour of testing. That no matter what we face, no matter how tough it gets, no matter how 
uh, oppressed we feel or tormented, the truth is that Jesus Christ will hold us fast. And we are safe and secure with Him. Do you remember what Paul says? I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed to Him against that day. I know that He can keep me. And by the way, that's one of the passages that lends to some of the confusion here because it's the exact same phraseology and it means keep me through it, not keep me out of it. Keep me through it. He is able to keep me against that day. He will not let me fail. He will not let me down. Friends, if you put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and determine in your heart of hearts to be true to Him, He will hold you fast. You do not need to worry about your ability to stay close to Him. All you have to be concerned about is your resolve. He will provide the ability and support you with His grace and power to keep you. And and what a safe place to be. What a wonderful place of security. But the second thing that comes out of this passage is, Jesus is speaking to the church at Philadelphia uh, at the end of the first century. Guess what year this is? 2016. They were kept from the hour. They all died. And we're still here. And that hour hasn't come yet. And so he's speaking to them in a prophetic voice about the church, the faithful church. And it's an encouragement to us that if we are living as these end times come upon us, that we can trust Jesus Christ to keep us. He will do that faithfully. Uh, The application, in other words, is broader than the church at Philadelphia. It goes all the way to the present moment and promises us that kind of victory. So what does he say about those who will remain faithful? Very quickly. He says, first of all, I will give you stability in the kingdom of God. Do you see that in verse 12? I will make him, to the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. When you think of a pillar... In the temple, what comes to mind? You'd see something about this big around, holding up the roof. Granite, marble, strong, yeah. Where's Lori Johnson? Is she here this morning? I remember her saying, strong like bull. <laughs> Quoting her ancestry. Um, yeah, strong, stable, like a rock. You will be a pillar in the temple of God. To him that overcomes, I will write on him the name of God and the city, the new Jerusalem. How do you like that? Here's your passport. Remember how it started out? I'm going to open to you a door wide. No one can shut it. You have my passport. 
It has the name of God upon it. Presented at the door, you will be admitted. You have a permanent visa. You can come and stay here. You belong. You belong in the kingdom. And then he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Do you hear the message this morning? The message of God to us. He will keep us in the hour of testing. He will keep us in the time of persecution. He will fortify us. We keep our eyes on Him. He will supply all that is needed to be true to Him. And in the end, the door is wide open to the kingdom. And we are secure and solid and rock steady in His eternal kingdom. And He promises that He will do that. I have... uh, I'm done. I have been consistently running over lately. And in uh, deference to our workers downstairs, I'm going to pray for us this morning and dismiss us. Is that okay with you? Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this encouraging letter to Philadelphia. That no matter what we face, no matter how hard it is, you will fortify, you will strengthen. We keep our eyes on you. Nothing can shake us. You will bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom. We give you praise and glory and thanksgiving. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. God bless.